CVS is your one-stop shop for immunity support and more. This week, select Airborne and Zequil products are buy one, get one 50% off. Visit CVS or CVS.com today. Restrictions apply. See CVS.com slash weekly ad for details. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. from Washington, D.C. every Wednesday from 3 to 4 p.m. for an hour-long Generation Progress Takeover. Check us out at genprogress.org or on Twitter at genprogress. Hello and welcome to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I am your host, Charlotte Hancock, and will be joined very shortly by my co-host, Edwin. Oh, there we go. Great. <laughs> uh, so good to have you with me here, Edwin. <laughs> These are the these are the things, the magical and wonderful and terrifying things about doing this show remotely is normally I'm like in a radio room looking at you, uh, Edwith, and now we're sort of just doing this into our computers. So welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. Welcome to the Generation Progress Takeover. Edwith and I are glad to have you all with us today. All right. So there is a lot going on right now. Uh, and all eyes are clearly uh, and reasonably on next Tuesday, Election Day. But there is something else that's just as important that we can't forget about and need to talk about what comes next. So on Monday night, the Senate Republicans, uh, minus Susan Collins this time, uh, voted to confirm Amy Coney Barrett to the U.S. Supreme Court after a rushed confirmation process that occurred while voters across the country uh, have been voting early in record numbers. Shout out to the young people voting early in record numbers. Uh, Barrett's extreme originalist view of the Constitution, which holds that the Constitution must be interpreted exactly as it was intended to be interpreted when it was ratified in 1988, means that she is likely to rule very conservatively on the court. And at only 48 years old, Barrett could potentially be on the court for the next 40 plus years, which means that young people, uh, people under the age of 30, might be impacted by decisions that she makes for the rest of our lives. So to break down the hypocrisy of this confirmation process, what is at stake for issues that impact young people in this country and the potential court reforms we could see presented in the coming months? We are joined by Andrea Sosa, the co-executive director of Young People 4. Hi, Andrea. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Charlotte, and hey, everyone at Gen Progress. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're excited to have you with us. Um, and then also Anisha Singh, uh, the Director of Judiciary and Democracy Affairs at Planned Parenthood Action Fund. Hi, Anisha. It is so good to have you back on the show. For folks who don't know, Anisha used to be my co-host when she worked at Generation Progress. Um, so welcome, welcome home, Anisha. <laughs> Thanks so much, Charlotte. It's so good to be back. <laughs> um, Edwith and Anisha. Uh, Edwith has the job that Anisha used to have. So it is very fun to have all of us on the show here together. I'm very excited about this panel, this show of uh, 
boss ladies today. So <laughs> Anisha, to start us off, um, can you tell folks a little bit more about your work at Planned Parenthood Action Fund and what your role of Director of Judiciary and Democracy Affairs entails? Um, I feel like that is a big title for a big job, and I, I would love it if you could break down a little bit more about what that means and what you're doing over at Planned Parenthood Action Fund. Sure. Well, first off, thanks again for having me on. It's always great to come back. Like I, I just consider Generation Progress to be home, so it's good to be back home. Um, I, you know, I I left Generation Progress. Um, it wasn't a t it wasn't an easy decision, um, but I I felt really frustrated after the Kavanaugh fight um, when we saw very similar to what we just saw happen with this Amy Coney Barrett uh, vacancy, a rush process, um, the will of the people being ignored, um, and this takeover of our courts time and time again throughout the last four years that has indicated a lack of respect for the will, the will of the people um, and this cracking of our courts with these extremist nominees, many of whom are very much opposed to reproductive health, reproductive freedom and rights. Um, and so uh, I felt like it was my time to, to go to Planned Parenthood um, Action Fund and help build out this program to make sure that we're protecting our courts because as we know, our courts touch everything and sometimes are our last stop and our last place to go to protect our rights. And, and that is especially true when it comes to reproductive health care, um, reproductive freedom, uh, and, and health care in general. Um, and so that's kind of what my motivation was. And upon coming to Planned Parenthood to do that work, it also became abundantly clear how important democracy reform is for that conversation when we're talking about our courts. And we're talking about what has happened to our courts and this um, kind of uh, power grab that has happened with our Senate Republicans. You know, we're in a pandemic right now, and yet we haven't seen any COVID relief um, in months and months and months, um, over 200 days. And yet we have seen 210 judges being confirmed over the last four years, including nominees that they have confirmed over the last few months coming back to DC during a pandemic just to do that, not only with Amy Coney Barrett, but with several lower court nominees, all of that power grab and that inability to really prioritize what the American people want indicate the need for democracy reform as well. So helping lead and and develop that program at Planned Parenthood has also been an honor, just really thinking through both when we think about the courts, when we think about our democracy, how do we ensure that the levers of power are re returned to the people and not the powerful few, and that we make sure that our democracy works in a way that protects all of our rights, um, and particularly reproductive health care and, and repro rights. Thank you so much, Anisha. You covered like so many great and interesting layers that I look forward to us sort of like diving deeper into um, throughout this conversation. Um, Andrea, can you share a little bit about the mission of Young People For and what the team is currently focused on? Young People For is one of our greatest allies and partners within the space of youth advocacy. So we'd love to hear a little bit more about you and uh, the work that you all are doing. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much, Edwith. And looking forward to having this conversation with these amazing women. Um, so YP4, we are a social justice incubator. Um, we've been around for um, about 16 years now. And what we do is we provide lifelong social justice leadership training to unlock the potential of young people who have been historically left out of opportunity. So we're actually a national network um, that's present in all 50 states and territories that centers Black, Brown, Indigenous, 
Indigenous, uh, disabled, and LGBTQ plus leaders that are leading in all industries and in all sectors. Um, because for us, our vision is that we see uh, young folks leading in all industries that are rooted in social justice values and solutions. And for us, really, what at the core of social justice is civic engagement, um, which we ingrain in every aspect of the work that we do. And so around three years ago, we launched a multi-year campaign called Building Power to Win, with the purpose of training young folks on how to center civic engagement by focusing on the issues that they care about. You know, for a long time, we've been taught that the issues that impact us on a day-to-day -day basis are completely separate from the political process. And what we do is make those connections between, you know, what are the things that affect us on a day-to-day? -day? What are the issues that, you know, could impact us for the next decades? And really contextualize those um, because those are the conversations that we should be having, not just, you know, in this really consequential election, but in two years, in four years, in every single election, in, in local elections and in federal elections. Um, so this summer, we actually launched a civic engagement training series and summit, which folks can actually access if they go to our Instagram at young people for it's uh, was free and open to the public and all of the information is out there. And what we're doing now is um, helping folks have those conversations in their communities. We've uh, relaunched a, um, a revamped tool called Arrive with Five, where we uh, give folks pointers on how to make those connections between uh, the issues that they care about and what's at stake, not just in this election, but for the many elections to come. Um, so that's, you know, that's currently what we're focused on and, and making sure that we are able to contextualize how, you know, what's at stake now and what are the next steps moving forward that we need to do to be able to take action for the long term and make sure that our, we're building power in our communities for the long term. That's really great work. Um, we have also partnered with YP4 uh, to share their Arrive with Five like resource and tool. We think it's a really great product that folks can have at hand. Um, and YP4 has done a lot of great work around this SCOTUS fight too. So we're gonna jump into that. Um, at a very high level, Anisha, can you just sort of like walk us through the confirmation process uh, for Amy Coney Barrett and why it's so problematic? We only have a few short minutes before break, but it would be great to sort of like get that um, high level understanding before we head out. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, so uh, the president nominates um, and then the Senate Judiciary Committee takes on the nominee by holding a hearing, having a FBI investigation, doing background research, doing in-person, senators will do in-person interviews with the nominee. That usually takes a really long time because you wanna be really thorough. These are, again, lifetime appointments, right? So you wanna be really careful there. Um, then the, the Judiciary Committee in the Senate, again, they hold a um, hearing, they hold a vote. Um, and then the full Senate takes it on for debate and a vote. Um, and Anisha, I'm gonna, sorry, I'm gonna jump in. We've got 10 seconds to oh. break, but we will be right back with the Generation Progress takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. And I wanna keep hearing more. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at lesliemarshallshow.com. Hello. Hello and welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Edwith Theogene. And I'm Charlotte Hancock. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Today we are talking about SCOTUS. There's so much happening there and so much that's happened in the past few weeks. And we are joined by Andrea Sosa, who's co-executive director at Young People For, and Anisha Singh, who's the director of Judiciary and Democracy Affairs at Planned Parenthood for America Action. Um, 
So thank you so much for joining us. Before we went off to the break, we asked Anisha a very big question um, and we'd like to like revisit it again. Um, so Anisha, if you can just jump right back in and walk us through the confirmation process for Amy Coney Barrett and why it was so problematic, um, what's been really happening? Sure, and, and sorry, I was trying so hard to speed through it, but it's impossible to do that when we're talking about such a big process. So um, just to recap, you know, the president nominates someone for a vacancy, whether it's the lower courts or the Supreme Court, um, as he did here for Amy Coney Barrett. Um, usually there's a little bit of grace given, especially when there's a Supreme Court um, vacancy that follows a death. Um, as we know, in this particular circumstance, they did not waste any time. Um, we know that RBG's um, services were still going on, right? You know, and just ending right when um, uh, Trump decided to make the official nomination announcement. In, a, in an ideal world, we would have had a lot more time to really mourn and and collect ourselves uh, before the fight became partisan. But they made it partisan from day one. Um, from there, the Senate Judiciary Committee takes on the nomination and uh, does background checks, hosts um, individual meetings. Each member of the committee and the Senate as a whole will have individual meetings. Um, there will be very thorough vetting that should take place. Um, that's thousands upon thousands of documents that need to be reviewed. Um, and then there is a Senate Judiciary hearing. Um, in this instance, we saw a very fast-paced um process that did not allow that kind of time um, to happen. Uh, we know that there were many things on the record, on uh, in Amy Coney Barrett's record, that did not get revealed until later in the process because there just was such a fast-paced vetting process. And we know that it was not as thorough as it should have been and traditionally has been um, between nomination and the hearing, because usually that takes a lot longer. Um, from there, you know, the Senate Judiciary Committee votes out the nominee. Um, and then the, the full Senate takes on that nomination, has a debate, and then um, holds a floor vote. In this particular instance, we saw this happen um, from the moment of RBG's death um, to confirmation in less than 40 days with the actual process of confirmation from her nomination happening in 30 days, um, which is unprecedented. It really is the fastest we've seen. And again, that's when there's an election underway, right? 60 million people had already voted by the time she was confirmed one week out from the election. And so that is critically important when we're thinking about how fast this was and how unprecedented this process really was. Yeah, and I think um, I don't. I'm not sure if you touched on this, Anisha, but also one of the this process was so rushed. But historically, that has never been the case before, right? Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that, about the timeline, and about the hypocrisy that happened with the timeline? Yeah, just to give you an idea, from nomination to hearing. Um, there, you know, for, for Kavanaugh, it was 57 days. Gorsuch, it was 49 days. Kagan, 49 days. Sotomayor, 48 days. Alito, 60 days. And the list goes on. Um, and, and so just to give you that, you know, we saw that this nomination was just a 30-day process in total. Um, and those numbers I just listed out was nomination to hearing. And so it is very much unprecedented for that to happen. Um, and we know that there wasn't as lengthy of a background check done as should have been done. And again, that's because this is a lifetime appointment to a very, very important seat on our highest court that will make, and this individual will make decisions that will impact all of us on all of our rights. And so um, this process just with the vetting itself should take over a month. Um, and in this case, it was a week. 
Yeah. And I think you made a really good point in the beginning in the introduction, talking about how this was definitely a power grab um, as there's so many other priorities and things that are happening too. Uh, Andrea, can you, looking forward, uh, what are some of the examples of how the Supreme Court will impact young people? Right. That is such an important question because you know, this is something that we need to contextualize and think about, you know, in, in every instance before every election, because a SCOTUS vacancy could happen, you know, at any point. And it kind of brings home the idea that um, we need to be thinking about what's at stake at every single election. Um, you know, the Supreme Court has been made decisions that have been critical to our progress and to where we are now, but also has turned back our progress historically. So it's important to think about the history of some of the decisions that have been made on the Supreme Court from, you know, marriage equality to integration of schools. Um, and it all all of those decisions depended on the folks who were sitting in those seats. And the progress that we have seen at any point could be overturned. Um, you know, right now, there, some of the things are at stake, um, specifically after this uh, after this confirmation. Um, we're talking about the Affordable Care Act. Currently, it's pending in the court. And if the Affordable Care Act were to be invalidated, you know, that could mean that 131 million people could lose their protections for pre-existing conditions or 21 million people could lose their health insurance. And specifically, two million young people could lose access to, to health insurance. And, you know, not, that's just one example of, of what's at stake, but also things like uh, access to legal abortions with, you know, the Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade that gave people who are able to get pregnant access to legal abortion care. Um, if that would, would be overruled, that's something, that's a protection that, that we could lose. So these are just two examples of, of some of the things that would be at stake for us, but looking historically at, um, you know, all of the decisions that have been, have been made in the Supreme Court and the progress that has been made, um, a lot of those things are, are up for debate in this new court. And just to add there, uh, if I can, you know, there are 17 abortion cases one step away from the Supreme right. Court. So this is this is not just some, you know, philosophical thing. It is very imminent. Um, and that threat is really, is real. Yeah, I think that's really important to note. Um, I think we've got just about a minute left here um, in this segment. But Anisha, focusing in a bit, a little, a little bit more on what's at stake when it comes to reproductive rights. Um, you said there are additional decisions aside from Roe versus Wade um, that you're particularly concerned about being challenged. I mean, again, there's 17 abortion cases one step away, so we're concerned with all of them. And when we're thinking about our, our rights that are at, at risk, we're thinking about a birth control access, right? Mm -hmm. We know that Amy Coney Barrett wouldn't even say whether or not Griswold was um, correctly decided and whether or not she thought that was a precedent. So there's there's a lot at stake there. And I think um, with time running out, you know, we can, we can resume that conversation. But um, when we're thinking about reproductive rights as a whole, we have, um, you know, more than just abortion to think about, we're thinking about birth control, the Affordable Care Act, and so much more there. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we're going to head over to a break. Uh, we'll return back to this really important discussion about the SCOTUS nomination and what's at stake. And you've been listening to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. Uh, this is your co-host, Charlotte Hancock and Edwin Theogene, and we will be right back. 
Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. And I'm your other co-host, Charlotte Hancock. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome. Um, Today we are talking about the SCOTUS nomination. We're joined by Andrea Sosa from Young People 4 and Anisha Singh from Planned Parenthood Action. Um, Jumping right back in, we've covered what's at stake and we've covered what has happened. Um, Anisha, now that Amy Coney Barrett is officially a justice, many are calling for significant court reforms. What are some of the different reforms that Congress or potential future administrations might consider? What's part of the conversation? Yeah, I mean, just to take a step back, I think people are angry, right? We have like, you know, we have 62% of Americans saying the seat should have been filled by the winner of the election. We saw the the polls in our favor time and time again. Um, and so now people want us want us know what's going to happen to our courts. What does this mean for our rights? Um, and so there are a lot of conversations happening across the board. We know with the, the Biden folks, we know with members of Congress, and we know um, by, with the people on what reforms are possible. One thing is absolutely clear, um, that no matter what happens, we do need to see our courts rebalanced and legitimacy brought back. We need the faith in the courts to be brought back. What Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham um, and this administration have done to the courts by politicizing it and packing it um, and really making it a political tool has taken away that faith and and we need to make sure that that is restored. Um, So there's a lot that has been floated around um, by various groups across the board, whether it's uh, expanding the court term limits, um, expanding the lower court, um, ethics reform, um, so many different pieces that could go into play. And there's a lot of things to weigh there when it comes to um, what the benefits and and the harms might be of some of these reforms um, and which ones actually will restore that court the way that people want it to be restored. Um, It's super and it's critically important for folks to have faith in our judiciary as this third branch of government that you can rely on to really uphold our rights and speak for the people. Um, It has to be the people's court. So when we're thinking about um, the future, we need to be thinking about the reforms that will do that best. Yeah, you know, Anisha, until I worked with you, I actually didn't really have um, as as good of a grasp um, of how important the courts were uh, to our democracy. I mean, you learn in civics class that they're sort of a check and a balance here. They're like a a third part of this system here that's supposed to keep things in order. Um, But when I started working with you and you walked through uh, some of this and how how many um, up, you know, from not just talking about SCOTUS here, but up and down um, the the sort of ladder, the chain here, the number of these that are lifetime appointments, the number of these uh, that get confirmed um, by uh, sort of 
not fully, um, not fully fair, not fully uh, balanced leg state legislatures and that sort of thing who don't actually listen to the will of the people. Um, I was appalled. I didn't realize how much of this um, has uh, the ability to impact legislation and the way things get decided in our country uh, in such a long-term way. Um, so, you know, I was really glad that you opened my eyes to that and was really excited um, about the court's work that you did when you're a Generation Progress and what you've done since you've moved over there. Um, and you mentioned the term court expansion, and I'd like to dive in a little bit more on that. Um, Andrea, I'm wondering if I can ask you, um, what is court expansion? Um, can you talk us through that a little bit? And is there any precedent for expanding or shrinking the Supreme Court? Yeah, yeah, no, um, thank you for that question. And I think, you know, before we talk about um, court expansion, I, I do want to um, also take a step back and thank you, Anisha, for allowing us to do that. Um, in thinking about, you know, the, the origin of, of our system of democracy, you know, here in, in the U.S. And, you know, one thing that it we, we shouldn't lose sight of is thinking about how the origin of democracy in this country was never meant to include people of color. It was never meant to include marginalized communities or young people. And we need to use all of the tools at our disposal to make sure that it does work for our communities. You know, over the years, over decades, that has been our job to make sure that our communities are included. And we, we can't really lose sight of that, especially now. Um, and so, so that being said, one of the one of the the reforms that um, that Anisha alluded to and um, that Charlotte you mentioned is the idea of expanding um, the court and you know essentially what that would mean is adding um, more justices to the court you know the the number of justices is not mentioned in the Constitution so that is something that Congress could change at any time and it has been done throughout history it's actually been done uh, seven times throughout American history um, and you know I really want us to to center the conversation around what are those reforms that we need to do to make sure that we're dismantling the systems that harm black and brown communities and that continue to preserve white supremacy because um, you know that is the what the system that we're dealing with and throughout history our job has been to expand access to our democracy um, so you know there are a lot of of those reforms that are on the table um, court expansion being one of them and essentially that would be to go through Congress and and there is precedent for this and it has happened before. Thank you. I love that step back that you took. And I think, um, Andrea, in terms of like dismantling the system and making sure that there's equal justice under the law, which I think is part of the legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, mm -hmm. um, which makes this moment even more kind of like frustrating, right? Um, that this is happening in the wake of her, of her death. Um, I, just jumping a little bit to like some of the points that Anisha made earlier. Um, Anisha, can you give an overview of what Trump and the Republican Party has done to our courts as a whole? Um, what have you been seeing happening? Yeah, thank you for that. You know, this is this is something that is so frustrating to have to talk about, but you know, it stems back to president. Um, in his last couple of years, and there was this obstruction of justice. And, and you know, we saw um, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and, and Senate Republicans block um, almost all of Obama's nominations, um, including not confirming more than one. 
in the one uh, circuit court nominee in the final two years of Obama's um, administration. And we know that we saw what happened with the Supreme Court vacancy, right? Eight months before an election, um, their reasoning was that because it was an election year that uh, Merrick Garland should not get any, he didn't even get a hearing, um, he didn't get any uh, consideration. Um, and because of that, they had over a hundred vacancies that they were able to quickly fill once Trump came in, uh, into the White House. And so in less than four years, they have appointed about uh, 210 um, federal lifetime judges. Um, and, you know, just to give you a comparison, in, in Obama's first term, his first four years, he was able to appoint 30 circuit court judges. <clears throat> Trump has appointed 53 in his first term. So Obama 30, <clears throat> Trump 53. And that's nearly one in three judges in the Court of Appeals that is now a President Trump pick. Um, and a lot of these individuals, most of them are white, male, um, they're young, and they're hostile towards reproductive health care, health care as a whole, LGBTQ rights, um, so many of the things that we care about. And the fact that they're young is also really critical here because these are lifetime appointments, so they will be sitting on the court for a generation, um, for decades to come. And so that is kind of the way that they've been able to pack the court. So when we talk about packing the courts, that is exactly what they have done. They mm -hmm. hijacked our court system, they hijacked the process, and they broke several rules to get there. A hundred year long tradition called the blue slip rule, gone. Um, turning 30 hour debate to two hour debate for district court nominees. Um, <clears throat> rushing these processes and illeg illegitimate processes for Supreme Court vacancies, including what we just saw with Amy Coney Barrett during a pandemic, right? We're seeing time and time again um, that rules just don't matter as long as it means gaining power within the court. And that's because they know that their agenda is not popular with the people and will not uh, withstand the muster of Congress. And so using the courts as their backdrop um, has been their plan. So when we're thinking about the work ahead, you know, this has been uh, years in the making by the conservative um, kind of movement. And progressives are in a place now where we're catching up and we're figuring out how important the courts are and stepping to the plate in recognizing that courts just need to be a priority for us going forward. Yes. And I think like with just a few minutes going just a few minutes until we had break, I want to ask Andrea, just following up on what some of Anisha shared of what has egregiously been happening to our court system. Young people are not taking this sitting down, right? Like they're fighting back against this and trying to take ownership of the courts. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the work that you've been seeing some of your young leaders do um, or some of the work that YP4 is doing to kind of like fight back? Yeah. Uh, we have 60 seconds to break, so let's see if we can make it happen. Yeah. <laughs> No problem. The number one thing is letting our elected officials know that we're watching. A lot of the times elected officials, particularly senators, have banked on the fact that, oh, young people don't care or young people don't necessarily know what's at stake. But we're actively refuting that and saying, no, actually, we're watching you very closely. And we are the largest voting block, 18 to 34 year olds. We're the largest voting block. And we will hold our senator senators accountable for making decisions that will threaten our lives for decades to come. Um, and, and so, you know, that is putting young people at the forefront, especially those who are most marginalized and will be affected the most in decades to come. Um, you know, we've used the Our Courts, Our Lives is a campaign to uplift those untold stories because, you know, it, this is effect, essentially our lives that are on, on the line. I love that. And we will be right back.
Marshall Show. I am your co-host, Charlotte Hancock. And I'm your other co-host who really loved our welcome back song, <laughs> Edwith Theogene. <laughs> yeah, I will take that. I like that Mark was like, you know what? We have four uh, ladies running the show today. Um, so let's get information. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, to break down the hypocrisy of the Supreme Court, Amy, Amy Coney Barrett uh, confirmation process, um, we are back. We are here in our final segment talking about what's at stake for the issues that impact young people in this country. Um, as a, just a, for folks just joining us, we have with us here on the show today, Andrea Sosa, the co-executive director of Young People 4. Thank you so much for being with us, Andrea. And then we also have Anisha Singh, um, the director of Judiciary and Democracy Affairs at Planned Parenthood Action Fund. Anisha, thanks so much for being back with us. So Andrea, I have a, a question for you here um, in our final segment. For those who do support uh, reforms to the court, which it sounds like are just desperately needed in order to uh, reflect the will of the people, um, restore the balance of power here, uh, return this process to something that people can trust um, to sort of see justice through. Um, what should folks do to take action? Yeah. So the the number one thing that we should be doing is letting our elected officials know that we are watching and that this is something that we deeply care about. You know, contacting your senators and your representatives to let them know what the what are those court reforms that you support, pushing them to support the reforms in the new Congress, calling, emailing, tweeting them, posting online, making sure that they know that we are here and that we're watching. Um, also sharing your story about how your lives and how our lives as young people will be impacted by the Supreme Court, um, letting them know that, you know, your health care is on the line or that um, your access to reproductive health care is on the line. All of those things are really important because they need to be hearing from us, especially the folks that will be uh, taking the brunt of of the of what's at stake for the for decades to come. Also leading um, and and following the lead of organizations that that are leading on some of these court reforms like Demand Justice or Just Democracy, uh, signing their petitions and making sure that we're following, you know, the 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 reforms that that, um, that will be the best outcome for our community. Um, and aside from that, it's always keeping what's at stake in front of mind, whether it is this election uh, next week that's coming up or the election in two years or four years or your local elections, all of those things compounded will um, impact how, um, whether or not, you know, these reforms will take place or whether or not the protections that we need in our local communities will happen. Um, so it's staying as focused as we can to making sure that we're not just participating in this 2020 election, but we're participating in at every level of government government and in every election um, because they do have a compounded effect for the, you know, for the long, our well-being in the long term. Yeah, I think, I think that's exactly right. Um, Anisha, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to really echo everything that was just said and also just add, you know, one of the things that I take with me, um, this is a, this is now my fourth Supreme Court vacancy fight. And I, you know, it's exhausting um, considering what we've seen over the last five years when it comes to these uh, four fights. But um, it, I try to remind myself it's a it's a marathon, not a race. And we have to look at the big picture, the long term um, goals here. And, and one thing that I carry with me that gives me hope is 
five years ago when I was working on the first vacancy, um, when Scalia had passed away, um, when I talked to Senate offices, they would say, why should we make this a priority? Um, why should we um, you know, put our jobs on the line when it comes to the courts when we're getting three to one calls from conservatives about um, this this fight or these judicial nomination fights than than progressives, um, and that has completely shifted. Polling has shown, and and the numbers show that progressives are more engaged on the courts than ever before. Um, that there are Supreme Court or court voters on on the left um, that are really taking the courts as an issue, um, not something that's far away from them that the experts and the lawyers and the wonks will deal with, but something that is critical to their everyday lives. And that shift is critically important um, for us to really see change and for us to make sure that the courts are ours. And so um, I just carry that with me when I think about the hope that we have, that the hope that we have to have as we continue this fight to protect our courts. Yeah, and I I would love to dig in a little bit more on a couple of things that both um, Andrea, you just said, and Anisha. Andrea, I'm going to pivot to you uh, real fast here. So when we're talking about some of these court reforms that we're asking for and folks are calling um, their senators to ask for, um, what are some of the options? You know, how how would this be done? What would um, what would some of these things require in terms of support? Yeah. So it. You know, we talked a little bit about some of those of what those options are, like restoring balance uh, by adding uh, seats to the Supreme Court. That would be done by, you know, by Congress. So that would involve uh, calling on your members of Congress uh, if that's something that, you know, you think is important for for the reform of, of our courts. It's calling on our members of, of Congress, um, you know. Other things like creating a binding code of ethics. Those are other things that we could be pushing for. Um, and Anisha, actually, you made a, a really um, important point earlier about that this is not just something that is happening on the Supreme Court level. Uh, the majority of cases that are heard in the U.S. are heard at the district and circuit court levels as well. And uh, that's part of the the court reform that some of, of the folks that we mentioned are also pushing for is, you know, historically we've had an increased number of judgeships that uh, to keep up with the growing population and the number of cases. And, you know, right now in the 21st century, that has been made very difficult because of partisan gridlock. Um, so it's also making sure that we are not just uh, pushing at the Supreme Court level, but pushing at all levels um, of the, the district and circuit court too. Thanks. Um, Anisha, what can people do to take action more immediately on issues like healthcare, reproductive rights that may be threatened in the meantime? I mean, first and foremost, make sure your voice is heard through your vote, right? I mean, we have an election in less than a week, and it's critically important that no matter what, you make sure that, that you have, uh, you know, exercise your right to, to make sure your, your voice is heard in that way. Um, it's important for elected officials to know where the people are, and that's one of the critical ways to do that. Um, and then as it was alluded earlier, you know, keep calling your elected officials um, because they need to hear from folks. They need to know what exactly is on folks' mind, what our priorities are, and what we expect of them, um, you know, between now and the next election uh, in two years um, when they're up again. So, so they definitely need to be hearing. I didn't think about that. Sorry, two years. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Other <laughs> elections. Sorry. Go ahead. Get, get, get ready for the next one, right? But but that that you know, I teach I teach at NYU, and I, and when I teach my students, when I talk about, my, and you know, I teach public opinion. When I talk about my class, it, it's 
public opinion is so critically important in relationship to the government and them keep keeping their seats. And so when we think about the ways to really activate and put that pressure, it is relevant to are they going to be able to keep their seat in two years, four years, eight, you know, six years? And so when we're thinking about elections, we're thinking about the long game as well, not just the one in, in, in a week, but the one that's going to be coming up in, unfortunately, just two years or whatever it might be. Um, and so that is critically important, making sure they're, they're hearing from us, but also focus on um, down ballot, right? Look at what's happening in the states, because the states sometimes are going to be our saving grace for a lot of the issues that we care about when our when our federal government is failing us. And so how are we making sure that we're getting engaged um, and holding our states accountable, our state legislators, our governors um, accountable on these issues as well? Um, and then finally, just not, not giving up, right? Making sure that you're educating those around you on what's at stake, what's happening, motivating them to whether it's go vote, um, or get engaged and make their calls to their representatives um, so that everyone is, is, is um, doing their part uh, to, to change the dial. Okay. That's great. really great. I think both of you have shared a lot of great ways that people can get engaged and focused. I would also just add to research, like while you're looking at what's at stake, but research what policy solutions that we also want to push for as well. Because after the election, you have to continue engaging with your legislators and making sure that they're putting in the work and effort that we need them to and pushing forward for the solutions that we would like them to push for. Mm -hmm. Um so we only have a couple more minutes left before the end of the show. This has been such a great conversation and very informative. Um, where can people go to learn more about you and your work? Um, Andrea? Yeah, so you can go to youngpeople4.org, also on our Instagram, at youngpeople4. We have uh, been putting out a lot of information that helps contextualize a lot of what's going on and specifically be able to help to have you have uh, help you have these conversations in your own community. You know, we know it sometimes can be hard to translate, you know, all of these big conversations into that one-on-one -on -one conversation with uh, maybe an aunt or uncle that you haven't talked to in a while. Um, so if you go to our either our website or our Instagram, we have the tools to help you have these conversations. And, you know, the work begins uh, again right after Election Day, like, like Anisha mentioned. So making sure that we're staying focused. Great. Great. Thank you so much. And Anisha, uh, where can folks find more about your work? Yeah, so definitely follow us on Twitter and, and Facebook at PPACT. Um, and make sure you check out our website, PlannedParentHoodAction.org. There's also CrisisInTheCourts.com, uh, which really lays out some of the numbers and some of that overlay that I mentioned earlier on what's happening to our courts and ways to take action. Awesome. Thank you so much. And that is all the time that we have for today. Thank you again to today's guest, Andrea Sosa and Anisha Singh. Uh, you have been listening to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I am your co-host, Charlotte Hancock. It was great being here with you and Edwith Theogene. You can hear it in the empty theaters, in the empty stadiums. Hope is setting the stage for a comeback. When life's victories will be sweeter, we'll celebrate how far we've come and learn that all we did, we did for each other. Spread hope, not COVID. Michigan.gov slash coronavirus. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. 
What does it take to end cyber attacks? At Cyber Reason, we can tell you exactly what it takes. It takes an army of battle-tested defenders on a mission. Defenders who fight foes that operate under the cover of digital darkness. Defenders who think, move, and adapt faster than cyber attackers. Defenders with the technology and effortless automation to spot and attack forming on computers, mobile devices, servers, and the cloud, and alert you when it matters most. To end cyber attacks, it takes the brightest minds in global cyber intelligence working to deliver future-ready protection to guard your data wherever the fight moves. Cyber Reason is ready to win the battle with you and for you. In the fight to end cyber attacks, we are the defenders. Join us to reverse the adversary attacks with proactive protection against ever-evolving threats. Cyber Reason and cyber attacks from endpoints to everywhere. Learn more at cyberreason.com. That's C-Y-B-E-R-E-A-S-O-N.com. 